0: Hi, you're listening to The Lit Pickers with my friend, Deepanjana Pal, and her friend, Supriya Nair. That's me. For today's episode, we thought we'd play a little ball game where we pass the mic back and forth uh, as we talk about something that we're both mildly
1: interested in. We're calling this episode, Read Like a Girl, even if you're a boy or indeed any human being. Yeah, gender fluid. This is a gender fluid
0: episode. Yes. And in our attempts to be gender fluid, gender neutral and gender
1: empowered and to do gender justice. Have I covered all the bases? Probably I'm just not. so confused right now with all the genders that I'm like, just say anything. I agree. You yeah. sound great. Okay.
0: We're kicking off what we hope will be a running series of just our favorite recommendations for feminist reading. What we're doing is we've set a
1: stopwatch and uh, we're just going to bat this back and forth. With and recommend- because we're really sort of, you know, living up to the theme of things, our stopwatch is a human male. Yeah. <laughs> this is not even an exaggeration. Yeah. What time was it when we failed the Bechdel
0: test on this episode? <laughs> when it started. <laughs> <laughs> okay, at start o'clock. Uh, we're just going to pass this back and forth, um, recommending books to each other until
1: our time runs out. So without further ado, Deepanjana, do you read a lot? Do you come here often? No, no. (laughs) I'm largely a visual person, mostly illiterate, which is why I'm going to begin Mm -hmm. by asking you for a recommendation. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that is big. Okay, I will recommend
0: the essays of Audre Lorde, civil rights activist, feminist, black lesbian poet someone whose work has increasingly become more mainstream in recent years as uh, we start to tell each other that our feminism must be intersectional or it will be bullshit. Mm. Audre Lorde's poetry was the focus of a lifetime of work for gender justice against racism and against homophobia. But it's really her prose that I think people turn to for a quick introduction to her ideas because it's so vivid and eloquent and it really helps to give sort of shape to the defining emotion that I think a lot of people feel when they try to get to the roots of injustice, which is just anger. Mm -hmm. Um, Audre Lorde gave a speech at a conference once, which is widely titled The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle The Master's House. Brilliant title. Yeah, and a brilliant concept. It was a speech that she delivered to a conference of largely white feminists. Um, in which she essentially called them out and said that, uh, you know, what you're doing here is replicating the strategies of empowerment that men have used to garner power for themselves. And, uh, you know, that may win you a few shallow victories, but it's you're never going to win-win. And of course, she called them out also for it being completely non-inclusive and uh, disrespectful of the anger of other women who weren't included in their vision of a great, just world.
1: So from the perspective of an Indian, mm. I've always been fascinated with that. Just the title itself, right? That the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. Uh, because here we are talking in English, which in a sense was a master's tool mm-hmm. that we have, of course, claimed and reclaimed as our own over the years. But it's kind of interesting because we have in India been inheriting feminisms more than writing our own histories of feminism and our own narratives. Like we have a, the whole idea of erasure is a big deal in uh, feminist thought, that women's stories don't get, you know, prominence and they don't get the respect that they deserve. So... It's always interesting to me that in our case, actually, we have kind of tweaked the master's tools, you know, like we've really refashioned the master's tools to become our own. Yeah. We may not have dismantled the house yet, though. This much (laughs) is true. Suppose that's the
0: thing about an instrument like language, right? It can belong to a master, but also be refashioned by, you know, the laborer. Okay, um, I I have lots to say about Audrey Lord. I think she's a complicated person, mm-hmm. but I also want to hear about
1: your. Uh, so first I will book. I will bounce off your black feminist and raise a black feminist of my own mm-hmm. by the name of Bell Hooks. Mm-hmm. Born Gloria Jean Watkins, took on the pseudonym Bell Hooks, uh, which she writes with a small b and a small h. Which I will admit is the first thing that I noticed when I discovered her. Because when was that? Um, I think I was in college actually, so I think I was about twenty twenty one. I came to Bell Hooks very late in okay, life. Okay, so this was about three or four hundred years ago, at least. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Back then, I did not have a mobile phone. That in <laughs> itself explains how far back we're going. Time was meaningless, and yet Bell Hooks was meaningful and continues to right. be meaningful. Yes. Um. So there are a lot of books of Bell Hooks that I think are very interesting to look at, particularly today, because we have a continuing conversation which has revived about what it means to have an empowered woman's rights, what it means to be a man in, a feminist man in patriarchy. These are all issues that she picked up in different ways over the years. I actually think her book on um, toxic masculinity, Will to Change, I think it was called, is Fantastic. Mm. It's focused on black masculinity mostly, and the way it's depicted and the aspirations, etc. And that I think is becoming more and more relevant for us as hip hop culture becomes uh, more and more popular in India. Yes, because we have our own version, like a very indigenous version of male toxicity. But there's now new hybrid that takes inspiration from the agro-machismo of Black hip-hop culture.
0: Yes, we should also point out to our listeners who may not be familiar with Bell Hooks that she is a fierce and trenchant critic of
1: Beyoncé. This is true. Mm. Bell Hooks has said a lot of things that don't necessarily vibe well with um, popular thought. Mm. But what I love about her writing is that she takes really... And actually, this is true of a lot of feminist writing, nonfiction, that she looks at popular culture. She looks at stuff that's around us. And shows it from a certain perspective. Now, you may agree or disagree, but there's a very potent argument that she's putting forward. But the book I think of hers that I would recommend as a starter mm. is uh, Feminism is for Everybody. Mm. Again, there are bits in there that I'm pretty certain not everybody will agree with, mm. but uh, beautiful, easy writing for very complex ideas. Mm. And uh, yeah, it, feminism is for everybody. So there you yeah. go. Both with Lord and
0: with Hooks, you really realize that the way to read feminist writing is to argue with it while you are reading. Yeah. It, right? Yeah. Even though both write beautifully, neither of them write in a way that makes you want to kind of just swim in their words, mm. uh, you know, carried along in a current of agreement. No. Uh, and I no. think that's quite, quite important
1: very much so. Okay, what's up next?
0: You know, different people come to feminist thought in different ways, but the way I discovered it as a younger reader, which was also like 5 or 600 years ago mm-hmm. now, was through novels. And I'm not ashamed to admit that a lot of that came from the the sort of 19th century Victorian literature written by English women which if it didn't open up, you know, a vision of feminism, at least did uh, open up a very powerful strain of feminist compassion. But I'm not going to recommend one of them in this round, okay. I will recommend George Eliot's great heir in my mind, Virginia Woolf, writer extraordinaire, and also the uh, the author of a strange little book that came out in 1928 called Orlando, which is something of a byword for many, many trans readers and has been for generations. It's also, you know, regardless of your gender identity, is just seems to be a book that will open you up to the possibilities of seeing gender as fluid and fun and something to be played with. Because it doesn't get more fluid than Orlando in Orlando. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, Virginia Woolf on Song, it contains some of her best writing. It was uh, written as a fantasy to please her girlfriend, Vita Sackville West, to whom she also wrote perhaps some of the loveliest love letters Mm. of the 20th century. And the story is about an Elizabethan nobleman who wakes up, you know, one day as a woman, and who seems completely unperturbed by this and proceeds to go on through the next 300 years as a woman, you know, having affairs with people of various genders or of, you know, no particular gender identity, uh, just trying to finish a damn poem, which takes them
1: 300 years to finish. Basically, every writer's inner world.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) precisely. It's, I mean, uh, apart from the fact that it talks about how writing like a good piece of work takes
1: that long. Yes. Um, And you feel like you become different people. Right. Um, But what I also loved about Orlando, because like you, I discovered it uh, in my late teens. I did have the vocabulary of gender fluid at that point of time. No. Um, But just the idea that a person is not fixed in one gender was both incredibly new to me when I read it, but also it was written as something that's genuinely so fluid. Mm. Uh, You don't start at the oddness in any way, which is remarkable. Yeah. In conclusion, Orlando slash Marmaduke forever. Yeah. All right. You. Uh, Suniti Namjoshi. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back to people of color Mm. before going off full white after this. Mm. But yeah, uh, Suniti Namjoshi, Indian writer, extraordinarily fun. She's been writing since the 1980s. And I think it's a criminal shame that she's not more widely read Mm -hmm. because she's wicked. She's incredibly funny Mm -hmm. and extraordinarily insightful in her writing. Hmm. So there's a volume of her collected writings from, I think, the early 80s till the, I don't know, early 2000s called The Fabulous Feminist. Okay. It has poetry, it has essays, it has short stories, full of insight, lots of uh, myths and fairy tales tweaked to... So, you know, you start reading them and you think, oh, I know how this story goes. And then she'll suddenly take a left turn in the middle of the narrative and it becomes completely different, Mm. even more fabulous. And also, what I love about uh, Suniti Namjoshi is that she's a geek, Mm. right? So... There's the story that you're reading at a ostensible level of this happens, this happens, this happens. But underneath it, if you know this original that is inspiring it, then there's a level of understanding. Mm-hmm. If you have read a certain amount of theory, then there's another bit of understanding. You don't lose out if you don't know these others. But what happens is that if you keep reading on this subject, then you'll just find that these stories grow with you. Mm mm-hmm. A great example of the kind of layering she does is the title itself, The Fabulous Feminist, right? right? Fabulous as a word has gone through so many interpretations, as it were. But it's worth keeping in mind that its root word is the Latin fabula, which means story. Mm -hmm. So the fabulous feminist is actually the one that is fantastic in the sense of being a great storyteller Uh, but then you also have the fabulous um, which obviously means camp
0: (laughs) which means means
1: glittery so Suniti Namjoshi fabulous feminist would be my second pick Mm. what about you Uh,
0: okay I'm going to go with uh, a slim volume called The Scum Manifesto that was written in the 1970s by a woman called Valerie Solanas, who is uh, most famous or at least who has gone down in history for being the woman who shot Andy Warhol, not with a camera, but with with a gun, with an actual bullet. She didn't kill him. But But she tried. She tried. tried. To call Valerie Solanas bold would be to call the sun hot. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a rebel. She did and thought a great deal about feminist emancipation in her time. But the Scum Manifesto is perhaps kind of the distilled inheritance of all her work that we have, much of which I believe we're still trying to decode and understand and Push back against in many cases. The first line of the Scum Manifesto runs Life in the society being at best an utter bore, and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women. There remains to civic minded, responsible, thrill seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex.
1: Yeah, that sums up worldview, if anything ever did. Yeah, I really like this sort of, uh, you know, to take off from the idea
0: of a fable that can contain the possibility of a radical thought within it. Mm. Uh, I, I really like the idea of someone taking on the business of an outsized, pantomiming persona and find in it a way to contain, you know, very real anger and a very real call for like a complete Transformation roots up. It harks back to Audre Lorde's thoughts about anger and about rage, but it is also, in, it is, but it's not just an instrument of that rage, but it's also like a brilliant expression of that rage too. It's an essay that I think will make a lot of the people who read it laugh, but that will also make many, many people, many feminists, read it and think, God,
1: yes. Speaking of rage. Do you want to tell our listeners what SCUM stands for? Why don't you tell them? I have so much joy saying this, that thank you for that moment. Society for Cutting Up Men. Yeah. Okay. Um, I do have one question, though, about Solanas. Um, The absolutism that she has with gender, you know, the woman is fixed, man is fixed in certain gender identities. I mean, a lot of the opposition that she has towards masculinity comes from the notion of this fixed gender, which is kind of a contrast to, you know, Orlando the whole notion that you can be gender fluid, which in turn also brings with it, you can't then hate men. Do you find that opposition problematic? I find it a useful thing to think about. Hmm. Um,
0: You know, Solanus was obviously both completely dead sincere about what she was talking about and also taking a pose. So, you know, it becomes possible to talk about a breakdown in gender roles, Once you have, for example, reached a point where you can say, "Okay, I'm about to institute automation and destroy the money system. Mm. Until then, regardless of who performs what role, the power imbalance of the world and how we relate to each other is contained and understood very largely in how we perform masculinity and femininity. So in that sense, I find that pretty useful. Mm. My understanding is that a lot of trans scholars find it useful to think about as well, because so much of trans identity is both about Escaping the confines of the gender binary and yet grappling with a certain normative idea of what a woman should be or what a man should be, Mm. regardless of whether you're cis or trans. Okay, all right. That's for
1: Valerie Solanas. Thank you very much, our lady of scum. (laughs) Uh, Dipanjana, what do you have next? Taking off from your idea of the performances and power imbalances, Margaret Atwood, Mm. whose body of work in general is a joy for anyone who likes reading about complex women because Mm. they're not good all the time by a long shot. Mm. My personal favorite is Cat's Eye. Cordelia is by far one of the most charismatic characters, mm. I think, that exist in literature. She's, I guess, technically a bully, but she's a lot more than that. Mm. For me now, though, in the context of this discussion, the book that I would recommend is The Handmaid's Tale. Right. Um, never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> Partly because it has been adapted to a web series. Yeah, um, is that good? The first season was not bad. Mm. I'm unconvinced by mm. the second season because the second season is going beyond the book and as a long standing stalker sorry fan of uh, margaret atwood yeah hope you're not listening margaret oh no i told her she knows oh right. um yeah i had to interview her once well then hope you're listening margaret yeah really yeah. um so i was interviewing her and i knew that i'd never get past this so i just decided to open with it thing i got to tell you i love you so It didn't quite go that way, but it was close enough. Mm. And she sort of paused for a minute and she said, but were you actually stalking me? And I said, almost. And she said, damn, I didn't notice you. And I was like, this is why I love her. (laughs) Anyway, so The Handmaid's Tale um, is set in an unspecified future, which feels remarkably like the American present today, Mm. uh, in which women have lost all rights and are seen only as vessels for procreation. Mm. And if you are not able to have a child, then you have handmaids. Mm. Um, It is an extraordinarily well-imagined world. Um, And it's a world that's made even more evocative because of the kind of details that she supplies at different points. So when you enter it, you don't actually know exactly what you're into, but little by little, these pieces come together. So it's like being faced with a jigsaw puzzle that's been semi-formed and one by one, the pieces fall in place. And with every piece that does fall in place, it feels like an epiphany. Hmm. I think one of my favorite moments of reading is still that point at which I realized why the first person narrator is called Offred. Hmm. And I will not tell you why, because I'm hoping you'll read it and have that moment for yourself. Right. Because this hasn't come out in the series yet. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I abandoned the series after a bit. And if you are stuck on the series and you really should read the book because it will bring you more joy.
0: Oh, fantastic. So it looks like we ran out the clock a few minutes ago. Indeed. That's all we have for you
1: today. But I think we have enough to be going on. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be back reading like girls. And in the meanwhile, find us on Instagram. Listen to the other episodes of Lit Pickers because they have very good advice for reading, whether you're girl, boy, anywhere in between or beyond. And uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. Time. Time.
0: Thank you. This is a Made in India production. The editorial producers are May Thomas and Sean Phantom. Shania Subramanian is our producer and the assistant producer is Janam Devan. These episodes are edited by Vijay Doifre and recorded by Adriel George, as well as the Island City Studio. Our theme music is Here's to You by the Easy Wanderlings.